Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come into your house. Thank you for this beautiful day. Father, I ask this morning that you would um, take us above the turmoil and Father, seeming chaos that we see around us, you would take us up above the clouds that we might see things from your perspective as we look at your word this morning. Lord, we desperately need to see the truth of your word. We ask that you would guide us in all truth, that the spirit of God would lead us and teach us. Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any here, young or old, Father, that do not know you, that have never been born again in the Spirit of God, that you would do only what you can do, that you would bring to life that which is dead, Father, that you would lift blindness and give ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us this morning, Father, as we listen to your word, as we talk about what is contained in this passage for us this morning, we ask for your help. We'll give you the praise and the glory for it in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 8. Plan to finish up chapter 8 this morning. And our the chapter breaks were added much later after the, the text um, was written in the Greek. Therefore, our convenience and ability to follow along, but... I had planned this morning to to tackle a larger chunk, and the more I got into this, the more I realized that would be a futile attempt on my part. Um, We're going to wrap up the first four trumpets as we look at Revelation chapter 8 and verse 12. And I wanted to, to spend just a little bit of time this morning to try and make this cohesive for us. Um, there is a tendency to gloss over things as we as we study. Um, the book of Revelation, and I, I hear a lot of very, very good pastors and speakers when they're preaching or teaching on the book of Revelation, um, they tend to take large chunks and just pass over them. And I was reminded this week as I as I thought about this, that there is a promise in the book of Revelation that we're given at the very onset, and we're entering a a part of our study in the book of Revelation that is heavy, to say the least. And I, I was reminded of verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. What do we make of the heavy portions of the book of Revelation where we're seeing the judgment of God on full display. Well, let's let's take a little bit of a step back. I want to take you back to Revelation chapter 6. So turn with me there, if you will. And I just want to remind you of the first four seals that were opened, because it will help us make sense of and understand the first four trumpets. In Revelation chapter 6, and Amazingly, this ties directly to what we studied this morning in our study through First Kings. Revelation 6, verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Remember, that word come there in the Greek is not 
an invitation for John to come up and see, but it was a release of a horse. Just as you put a horse out the pasture, you slap it on its flank and off it goes. So remember, as we're reading the release of these four horses, they are they are sent out with a purpose. And in verse two, I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the living, the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So just some observations as we tie the seals together with the trumpets, and these will all tie together when we will look at this in the big picture. The seals will tie to the trumpets and the trumpets will tie to the vials or the bowls. And I want to remind you that these are all speaking of the same thing from a different perspective. But these horsemen are released to do what they do. These um, these events or these happenings, if you will, that are portrayed with the release of the four horsemen are temporal and preliminary forms of judgment upon humanity. They bring the white horse military conquest we were talking about this morning. Nation, empire building, jockeying for political position and authority. With the red horse comes war and bloodshed, the natural outcome of such political jockeying, if you will. And with the outcome of war comes what? Famine, the black horse, financial calamity. Does any of this sound familiar? Vaguely? And then with Famine and financial calamity comes the pale horse, death and hell. And I want you to notice that they are released to do what they do, and they are given limited authority. We talked this morning about the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of mankind. Wicked men will do what wicked men do. But notice that every aspect of these four horsemen is restrained or constrained. They're given limited authority, one quarter to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And note, they are restrained here. And I want you to see that they are evil. That is, this is a picture, by the way, these four horsemen of spiritual wickedness in high places. Why do we know that? If they were not restrained, what would they do? They would do what evil does, which is destroy everything that it can possibly get its its hands on. And as we get to the fifth trumpet that we'll look at next time, this becomes readily evident. 
the picture of the four horsemen is a picture of spiritual wickedness in high places, empowering wicked men to do wicked things. And the encouragement in that is in spite of everything that we see, all the chaos of war, the fog of war, if you will, God is sovereignly redeeming a people for himself. The book of Revelation is not about what event fits this event and how these things tie together. The Revelation is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is about taking our focus as the church of the Lord Jesus and putting it upon him and seeing things in this life from his perspective. In Revelation chapter 4, John's called up to the throne room, and it's just a reminder that we are to see the events and the affairs of this life from God's perspective. What happens if we don't see the affairs of this life from God's perspective? What happens to us? We worry. We get stressed. We get exhausted. We get burnt out. We try to figure things out on our own. Well, what are these things, these events, these happenings? They are, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, these are birth pains. These are contractions. Gracious reminders that the great day of wrath is coming. That's what all of these events are. Jesus said to his disciples, they come to him separately and privately in Matthew 24 and verse 6. Jesus reminds them, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not what? Alarmed or troubled. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. By the way, why must wars take place? Well, you know why wars happen? Because when man is not at peace with God, what happens? He he takes up weapons against, we, we talked about it this morning, his brother. Studying through First Kings, and we're seeing the picture of civil war. That's touched our nation. We're a, a stone's throw, a, a hair's breadth away from another civil war in our own nation. We have, we're, we're at odds over race. You name it, there's division in our country. Why is it? Why is there a division? Because we are not at peace with God. And war is the natural outcome of being at odds with God. And it's God's judgment brought on humanity. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. By the way, if you thought the bad news stopped at wars, rumors of wars, and nation rising against nation, Jesus says, no, for, for you, the Christian, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Why do we fall away and hate each other? Because we hate God. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And notice what what holds back the end. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world 
as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In spite of all the chaos that we see when we look around us, and has been going on, by the way, you talk about the period of time, the last times, or the last days, if you will, there from the ascension of Christ until he comes back. That entire period of time has been marked by these same events. The early church, the church, the church that's addressed in the book of Revelation, the seven churches, seven literal churches who were going through it. This is written to them to encourage them because they had martyrs among them. They were being attacked viciously. The church is embattled. And it was that way from the departure of the Lord Jesus. And it will be until his return. I want you to see also that there is a close comparison when we look at um, the seven trumpets. Much of what we see in terms of symbolism or imagery in the book of Revelation takes us directly back to the Old Testament. We come up with all sorts of fanciful ideas of what these symbols mean. But scripture interprets scripture. And at the end of Revelation um, chapter seven, we find the picture of the full body of Christ from every nation, every tongue that no one could number, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice. There is a a picture here of, of the church militant ready to go to war and then quiet. Does it, does it take you back at all to the Old Testament when you think about this picture? Think about when Israel first enters into the promised land. What is the first obstacle that we find? And God tells them to surround the city quietly. And then on the last day, they're to blow the trumpets seven times and then what? Shout. There's a a close similarity here in this imagery that we have in the book of Revelation. And we see two things happening in that account. In in Joshua, um, we see the impenetrable Jericho being taken down with the sound of a trumpet. There are two things happening, though. God tells Israel, when the walls come down, you are to go in and eliminate the enemy. Take no prisoners. And yet, while that is happening, what else is happening? You have a prostitute with a silver or with a crimson cord hanging from her window. When the walls come down, her section of the wall is spared. There are two things. I want you to see this because we see it. Mark, you pointed this out in our study this morning. There are things that are obvious from the outset that we see with our own eyes. And then there are other things. All things that are that we see are not the only thing that is happening and taking place. God is judging Jericho, but he's also saving his remnant. He's doing both things at the same time. We see the salvation of the remnant, Rahab's family. She's mentioned in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But then the total destruction of the city. And there is a similar picture for us here with the the sounding of the trumpet judgment. So how did the seven trumpets relate to the horsemen specifically? Well, 
First of all, I want you to see, and we talked about this, the emphasis of the seven seals is a picture of judgment <clears throat> that focuses primarily on the sealing of the saints. What's going on with um, the seven seals? It's focused on the mediating work of Christ and how the saints are sealed, protected in judgment. What is the sealing of the saints? Anybody remember? No, you're awake. The Holy Spirit. Yes. Scripture tells us, and remind, we're reminded in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is God giving his spirit to indwell the believer. It is the mark of ownership. When, whenever we talk about the book of Revelation, one of the first subjects that come up is the mark of beast. And everybody is keen to want to know what is that? And with artificial intelligence taking off, people are, boy, we're down other rabbit trails with the mark of the beast. What is it? It's a mark of ownership. And there are two marks. There's the mark of the saint and the mark of those that have the mark of the beast. They're a picture of ownership. How does God mark you out that you belong to him? How does he do that? Well, if I shower and I keep my hair a certain length and I wear Certain clothes, I'll look like a Christian. No. He marks us out with his Holy Spirit who indwells us. Know you not that you are the temple of the living God? So the emphasis of the seven seals is a reminder to the church that, yes, I am bringing judgment. But in the middle of that judgment, you, the church, are in the land of Goshen. I am protecting you. I am sealing you marking you out, and it, it means that we are untouchable to the enemy because as we look at the trumpet that we'll look at next time, the fifth one, that becomes incredibly important. The emphasis of the trumpets, however, conversely, as compared to the seals, is on warning. The trumpet warning is to the unconverted remnant. Seals protect, trumpets warn. And we will see that like Pharaoh, the trumpet judgments will serve to harden the hearts of the wicked. Remember, we looked at the first three trumpets last week, and they have a direct parallel in imagery to Egypt and the plagues that God brought against the nation of Egypt for the many, many years of bondage that they put Israel through. And in Romans chapter 9, Verse 14, we're reminded of what God accomplished with the judgment of Egypt. And this is tough to swallow, but it is nonetheless scripture. What do we make of this when we think about the hardening of the wicked? Romans 9, 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul addresses at the very onset that our misunderstanding of this subject is not because there is injustice on God's part. It is because we do not understand the nature of ourselves and the nature and the character of God. He says this, is there injustice with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy 
Listen to this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, God is not ashamed of this, by the way, and neither should we be. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Is there any ambiguity in that? Pharaoh, I put you in Egypt and I raised you up to be the mighty man of war, the most powerful man on the face of the planet. And I did it for one reason, that I might show my power in you. Ten plagues God brought against the nation of Egypt. And every time it looked like Pharaoh was on the verge of saying, you know what, I relent. What happens? The scripture gives two phrases. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what do we make of that? God tells Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He is a righteous judge. We need to understand that at the onset. There is not one punishment or plague that he brought against the nation of Egypt that they did not justly deserve. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And and there it is. And then we say, well, wait a minute. God creates sin in Pharaoh. Paul, Paul anticipates that. And he asks at the onset, is there unrighteousness with God? By no means. God forbid. So what's happening here? Is God creating fresh sin in Pharaoh? It's an important question, but it tells us something about ourselves. If I have to ask the question, is God creating sinfulness in Pharaoh? It tells me something very important about me. That is that I don't understand my heart. He uses these judgments to reveal Pharaoh's depravity. And then he gives him over to it. What does that look like? Well, he removes restraint. Do you remember in in, uh, Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham and Sarah are on their journey and Sarah comes into the kingdom of Abimelech and Abimelech says, she's a beautiful woman. I think I will take her to be my wife. And that night Abimelech is sleeping and the Lord comes to Abimelech in a dream. And says, you touch her and you will die. She is the wife of my anointed. And what does Abimelech say? Lord, out of the integrity of my heart, I did this. What does the Lord say? Yeah, I know all about your heart. And he said, I withheld you from sinning. God is restraining evil. If God took his hand off of us, the depths of depravity would know no limit. And the very fact that we have to ask the question, is God creating new evil in Pharaoh when we see Pharaoh's heart hardened? Is not God create or causing Pharaoh to sin? He's given Pharaoh over to the hardness and depravity that is already in Pharaoh's heart. He removes the restraint. Spurgeon says the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I was thinking about that statement, and I I looked up the message that that Spurgeon preached where he, he made that very famous quote. 
And it was a message on Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And I'll read a quote of it for you this morning. This is the passage, Jeremiah 1, 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Spurgeon has an innate quality about him that he can take a sentence and preach on it for three hours. Amazing. But here's what he says about this passage. Very briefly, he says, let me remind you of the quickness of God to fulfill his threats. Do you realize, dear hearers, you who are now now hearing the gospel, but have not yet received it, that God's threats take effect at once? No, you say, he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That is most true, yet there is a sense in which his sentence takes effect at once. For instance, he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you have heard the gospel, and some of you have heard it many, many years, and yet have not heeded it, you will not be condemned for the for the first time at the last great day. You are condemned even now. Some people say to us, why do you ministers in your preaching so constantly deal with another life instead of dealing with this one? Our answer is that we do deal with this life. We deal with it continually, for we believe that both sides of that text are true at this very minute. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Even now at this moment, while you are in this building, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, the wrath of God is abiding on you now. He says, as he continues, listen again, there is another immediate effect of the word of the Lord, which follows as quickly as the blossom appears on the almond tree. Upon some hearers, it produces an instant hardening. You remember how Paul appears or how how Paul wrote, quote, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ and then in them that are saved and in them that perish to the one, we are the savor of death unto death and to the other, the savor of life unto life. You, dear friends, are deriving from every gospel sermon that you hear, either life unto life or death unto death. Think about that. If you get no good from it, you will assuredly get harm. An an unbelieving hearing of the gospel is a multiplication of curses to your soul. Another sermon for which you have to give account. Another rejected exhortation recorded against you. Another earnest invitation which you have refused and for which you will be held responsible. Listen to this. You are heaping up to yourselves wrath against the day of wrath, even while you hear the word of the Lord. I am not now talking about what will happen to you when you die or when you rise for the final judgment. I am speaking about what is happening now. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Take heed 
that you do not soon see the almond tree blossom in this terrible sense. What does scripture say? My word shall not return what? Void. Okay. We think about that and we say, well, what happens when the word of God is preached and there is no repentance of the sinner? Is the spirit of God just not present that day? Did the church leadership forget to, to schedule the spirit of God to accompany the preaching of the word that day? No. You heard what Spurgeon said. When there is a hearing of the gospel and a rejection of its truth, what is happening? Is God's word being wasted? He's heaping up judgment. You're sitting in these seats today. If you hear the teaching and the preaching of the word of God and do nothing with it, you refuse to obey it. You refuse to submit to it. You are heaping up judgment now and hardening now. I want you to see with the trumpets and the seals, there is a picture of progression. Notice the four horsemen were allowed to harm a quarter of the population. What did the trumpets, what are the trumpets allowed? Did you catch that? It's different. As uh, Mr. Taylor would say, the math ain't mathing. <laughs> what's, what's going on with that? With the seals, we see there is a restraint to one quarter. With the trumpets, we see a restraint to one third. What's the difference? Well, I'm not a math expert. And I, I remember my days, I was never so happy to graduate in all my life because I promised myself I would never deal with math again. By the way, kids, you use math every single day. As much as I hated math, and I would sit there and cry over my math. <laughs> this is not understandable, and nobody will use this. But even I know the difference between a quarter and a third. Which is more? <laughs> it was not a trick question. You guys are waiting. I see you all looking at Mark because Mark's a math guy. What's he going to say? One third is greater than a quarter. So what's the picture here? It's very simple. This is not, God is not trying to make this overly complicated to his church as this is read into their hearing. There's a progression. There's a quarter allowed, then a third, and then with the, the vials or the bowls, what? Total wrath. There's a progression he is showing here, Okay. A reminder that the focus shifts from the believer here present to the wicked who will have it much worse. We talked last week about the song of Asaph, Psalm 73, where Asaph is crying out to God and saying, why does the wicked seem to prosper? And Asaph goes into the presence of God, the sanctuary, and he says, it was until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That is the wicked. Who will have it, um, he says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You will make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. We tend to think that the wicked are prospering. And Asaph said, when I went into your sanctuary, what is he talking about? When I considered the character and the nature of God in his sanctuary, what is that a picture of? 
his holiness. God is a holy, righteous judge. If he is a holy, righteous judge, who will get away with what? Not one person. We do not need to fear that anyone will get away with anything. When people mistreat us or abuse us or martyr us, bring about persecution against us, don't worry. God will bring about justice. He is a righteous judge. The trumpets show the impact of the four horsemen unleashing conquest, war, famine, pestilence, death. And in, in the first trumpet, we saw the symbolic impact on a third of the earth. If you look in verse six and seven, real quick by way of reminder. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. And I I remind you, the seven trumpets are very reminiscent of the judgments poured out on Egypt. The seventh plague against Egypt was hail. And this is a picture and a reminder to the church, because this is an encouragement to the church that God is preparing his bride for a mass exodus. Think about that. God is telling the seven churches in approximately 8090 and 8095 that I am preparing you for a mass exodus. And I'm going to bring judgment against this world that's typified in the nation of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 9, we see the trumpet warning. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Did God warn the nation of Egypt that he was bringing judgment? Yes, he did. And what, what happened? Those that feared God that is, believed the prophet Moses, what did they do? They listened. They got their family, and they got their animals, and they put them in shelter. Those who did not fear God suffered punishment. I want you to see that God's judgment reveals the hardness of men's hearts. Think about that. When God warns of his judgment... And he's so gracious to warn us in advance. There are some who heed, who listen. And there are some that are hardened in their sin. The second trumpet, verse 8, blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. That takes us right back to Exodus 7. Verse 14, which was the first plague in which the water of what? The Nile was turned into blood. The mountain here pictured is um, the city of Babylon, Jeremiah 51, 25. Again, it takes the guesswork out of scripture when we compare scripture with scripture. Jeremiah 51, 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste. 
declares the Lord. Well, what is this mountain that Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 51? In verse 41, he says, how Babylon is taken, the praise of the whole earth seized, how Babylon has become a horror among the nations. We will see as we study through the book of Revelation, the preeminent picture of this world, of Israel's Egypt, is what? Babylon. Third trumpet, verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters become Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Here again is an allusion to the turning of the Nile into blood. The judgment of poisoned water. Remember what the Egyptians had to do after God turned the rivers of the Nile or the river of Nile into blood. They had to dig trenches trying to find water dig new wells because the water was poisoned. What's the picture here? What is the picture here? I want you to understand something. This is, this is biblical symbolism. We can be looking at train wrecks that, that, that contaminate the water supply and say, aha, that's it. But there's something far deeper going on here that we need to understand. This is symbolism. What are all of these things? What are where are all these things happening? They're they're pointing us back to Exodus. Okay, what is God doing with the ten judgments that He brings upon the, the the people of Egypt? Every one of the things that God does is a judgment against what? An idol. An idol. They're gods. The Nile was the source of all life. They worship the Nile. I want you to see here that this picture of this, the four trumpets here is God putting down the idols of this world and those who worship the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, these first four trumpets all impact what is the primary focus of our culture, Mother Nature, the source of all life. I want you to see that some things never change. Listen to Revelation 9, verse 20 through 21. It's, it's after these trumpets are released. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The primary breaking of God's law is found right there in the beginning, isn't it? Thou shalt have what? No other gods. Revelation 9 reminds us that even with the threat of the plagues and the carrying out of temporal judgment in this life, what happened? They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries. The word sorceries there in the Greek is the word pharmakia. Guess where we get that from? Pharmacy? What? Drugs. They didn't repent of their drug use. There's a direct link between sorcery or witchcraft and drug use. Does our nation know anything of drug use? 
and all the rest that goes with that, the sexual immorality and the thefts. Notice that the, the picture of wormwood here, poisoned water. Jeremiah 9, 12, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom is the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accordance with it, but have stubbornly followed, listen to this, their own hearts and have gone after Baals. What is our culture's moniker that we hear all the time? Just, it won't steer you wrong. Lies. But stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations who neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send, listen to this, I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. You listen to our Bible study this morning. This will help connect the dots. I heard, um, I don't know, how many of you watched Star Trek growing up? When I was just a, a wee little kid, I remember the, the trouble with Tribbles. Remember that? Is that right? Um, Captain Kirk, Spock, you remember those characters? Um, William Shatner is in his early 90s, and he said recently that his time is short. And there's a lot I didn't know about him, but I read an article that was written by Ken Ham the other day. And he said this, quote, when Shatner wrote in the blue or, or, or origin flight for 10 minutes, he saw the earth from space. If you listen to the interview with Neil Cavuto, you'll hear how amazed he was about how special the earth looked compared to everything else in space. Instead of seeing it as an obvious miracle of creation in the vastness of space, he saw it this way, quote, when I came out of the spaceship, I was crying, just sobbing. And I thought, why am I crying? I'm in grief. This is Shatner speaking. I'm grieving about the world because I know so much about what's happening. I saw the earth and its beauty and its destruction, he continued. It's going extinct. Billions of years of evolution may vanish. It's sacred. Listen to this. It's sacred, meaning the earth. It's holy. It's life. And it's gone. It's beyond tragic. We stupid animals are destroying this gorgeous thing called the earth. Doesn't that make you angry? Don't you want to do something about it? He said humans are animals intricately connected to the universe and earth, and we need to connect with them. He used the word prayer regarding praying to the universe, not to God. That's his religion. Ken Ham continues, of course, many will say, as TV host Neil Cavuto said, how profound. But it's utter foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, 1. 
In the modern climate religion he refers to has people thinking they can save the planet and save themselves. But one day, God will destroy this planet by fire, 2 Peter 3, and create a new heaven and a new earth. Nothing Shatner can say or do will change that. God promised after the flood, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Only God can destroy the earth. Brings us to the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So with the first four trumpets, we see damage to land, sea, fresh water, and now the picture, the symbolism is of heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars. And there are people thinking, well, wasn't there a, a, an eclipse recently? Is that what this is talking about? And I'm not making light at some of the conjecture that has become popular in our culture. But I want you to see something. There's something much more important going on here. And the fifth trumpet makes it patently clear. We're not talking about the planets here in physical nature. Now, at the end, the the sixth seal, we see the undoing of the heavenly bodies. What were the heavenly bodies given for? Does anybody remember? Times and seasons. When the sun, moon, and stars cease to exist, what happens? Time's, Time's gone. Time's up. This is this is a different picture here, again, using very similar symbolism. What's happening here? Well, we're seeing a darkening, okay? What is the darkening? Remember, he says, how much of the moon, how much of the sun, and how much of the stars? Did you see it? The third. So there's a darkening, but it's restrained. It's restricted to a certain amount. And the scripture says it is woe, woe, woe. Mark, you had, I think it was Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, talks about woe. Woe here is not horsey stop. What is it talking about? When we see the picture of woe pronounced, the, the, and it's, it's given to us in triplicate here. As if one woe is not bad enough, there's three woes. And it instantly takes my mind to what? Isaiah 6. Thank you. In Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah has a vision of the Almighty high and lifted up in the temple. And what is the message of the cherubim there? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times the holiness of God is mentioned. What does that do? What is that meant to do? Because it it had the desired effect in Isaiah. Because what was Isaiah's response to holy, holy, holy? 
Remember what he said? Woe is me. And if you read the King James, I love how it says, I am a man undone. There you can you can the picture with Isaiah as he is confronted by the holiness of God is I have lost all control of my ability to stand here. Woe is me. The picture is calamity, even damnation. Listen to the Lord Jesus as he talks to the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't use that word lightly, does he? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing a great darkening. Now, does this look familiar at all? Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Can you imagine three days not being able to see any light? And Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Moses, or Pharaoh, is still negotiating with God in his own mind. You must also, Moses said, let let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Here's Pharaoh shaking his autonomous fist in the face of God. and telling Moses, you come back, I'm going to kill you. As if Moses' life was in the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses responds, verse 29, as you say, I will not see your face again. Did Egypt worship the sun? You remember the name of the sun god? Wow. Yesterday, we were on our way home from um, Asheville, and we drove the long way through uh, Mark's old neck of the woods, um, and we went by Linville Cavernous. Anybody ever been there? few of you. Well, I, I haven't been yet, but Nicole took some of the kids and probably remember some of you guys. They take you into the, the cave and then they turn the lights off. And it's, I'm told, pretty dark, a little shadowy. No shadows. Can't even see your hand in front of your face. There's only a couple places on planet Earth that you can experience such darkness. And I, I, I've read that after you get to about 6,000 feet in depth in the ocean, the sun, the, the rays of the sun stop penetrating the water. And I think the Titanic is somewhere at 13,000 feet in depth. There's no light there. And in a cave, there's no life. There's no light. What is this a picture of? Well, God is dealing with a God, little g. But there's a picture here 
that we need to be aware of. And that's this, this is a picture of wickedness and the deadness of man's heart. Remember, he's dealing with Pharaoh. Why did he raise Pharaoh up? Because he's going to show that Pharaoh is not in charge. Pharaoh is not autonomous. God is sovereign. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Listen to John 3.19. Almost everyone can quote John 3.16, but how many people quote John 3.19? And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Now, this is in direct connection. We, we tend to shift gears, but who is Jesus talking to in John chapter 3 and verse 19? He's still talking to Nicodemus. And what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? Except a man be born again, what? He can't what? See the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you're blind. Yes, you are religious. But you are blind because you're spiritually dead. This is a picture of judgment on this world. Blindness that is brought to bear. 1 John 2.9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, we're brother against brother this morning, he is still in darkness. Whoever hates his brother, 1 John 2.11, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want you to see something. Without the work of God, there would be no sight. Think about that for a second. Without the work of God, there would be no sight. I'm coming down the home stretch, I promise. Turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we find a very interesting case. And the disciples come to Jesus and they ask a, an important question. They're passing by John chapter 9, verse 1, and they see a blind man from birth. Now, apparently, he is fairly well known because they knew he wasn't just a blind man, but that he was a blind man, what? From birth. This guy was well known in the community. And his disciples came to him and said, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they're partially correct. And the effect of sin is death. And with it, great calamity. But they were wrong because they were thinking he did something or his parents did that this man was born blind. And notice what Jesus said. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he was not a sinner or that his parents were not a sinner. But he listened to this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man sat blind into his 30s. We know he's over 30s because when the Pharisees take the light like the CIA and shine it in his face and say, what did he do to you? Jesus is a fraud. We want you to admit it. And his parents said, he's of age. Talk to him. So he's over 30. Over 30 years, he had been blind. And Jesus said it was all for one reason. Mm. What was that reason? 
So God's works would be made manifest in him. God <clears throat> is interested in putting his full character on display. That is his glory. God's glory is him going public with who he is in his nature and his character. This man sat blind for over 30 plus years in darkness so that the works of God would be made manifest in him. We think that we can turn our own spiritual light switch on and off. We, we fool ourselves. Without regeneration, we are appealing to blind people with Braille. We can't negotiate deadness. We're going to talk about presuppositional apologetics in our Bible study. One of the very fundamental facts of presuppositional apologetics is you are arguing with a dead man. How do you win that argument? So the, the Pharisees question this man, and, and the entirety of John 9 is taken up with this whole narrative. If you go to verse 35 of John 9, Jesus heard that they had cast this man out. They rejected him. You're a liar. You've been faking for 30 plus years. You're not really blind. And they cast him out, having found him. This is Jesus. Jesus says to the blind man, do you believe in the son of man? He answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. <laughs> you have seen him. Who is the first person that the blind man saw? Yes. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, I've read many progressive Christian articles who say Jesus never permitted people to worship him. Not true, because guess what? Jesus is God. He's God incarnate. And what is happening right here? The blind man worships him because he sees him for who he is. And Jesus lets him. Nothing in the text says Jesus stopped him from worshiping him. Why? Because Jesus gave him life. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus is talking to the blind man who's now been made to see. And the Pharisees are eavesdropping. They're listening. They've got their little cup to the wall. What is he saying? Maybe we can catch him in something. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 39. All of this, the blind man and all that this blind man goes through, here's the message that Jesus says. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? You just see the sarcasm dripping in their, in their statement. Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What is he saying? If you were truly blind and you saw yourself as you are, you'd know that I could forgive you and that I could give you sight. And then he says, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Why? Jesus said, I, I came to seek and save what? That which is lost. A healthy person has no need of the great physician. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. 
And Jesus says, you don't know that you're blind. And you know what? I'm leaving you in your blindness. Woe to you. Because here is the light of the world standing right in front of them. Isaiah chapter 9, prophetic passage. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Listen, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. What is that great light? Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We sing that song, the whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 8, it says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul is writing to the, the Ephesian church. What happened to the, to the people in the Ephesian church? He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What happened to them? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, I'll not read it all, but he said in verse 6, and, and um, or let me read verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And listen, and raised us up with him. Where is the darkest place that you could be if you were alive to be aware of it? Anybody claustrophobic? Have you ever been worried about being buried alive? In a coffin, under five feet, six feet under, pushing up daisies. Can you imagine that, being in a coffin, buried? No light. Here's the language that Paul is using to the Ephesian church. When he says, you used to be darkness, now you are light. What happened to them? The scripture says he raised them up and seated us with him in heavenly places. He's talking about the tomb. He has taken you out of the tomb and put you in heavenly places. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Out of the tomb and into the throne room. 1 Peter 2.9, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Do you think Nicodemus would have taken a step out of that grave if the Lord Jesus had said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, come forth? He wouldn't have stepped, taken a step. He was dead. We have to understand this. Dead means dead. <clears throat> it doesn't mean mostly dead, partially dead, on life support. Somebody forgot to plug in his heart monitor in. It means dead. The heart is deceitful above all things. And what? Partially wicked? Mostly wicked? Some good? Desperately wicked. For us to understand this, guys, I, I need, I, I want you to see this. The, the, the depravity of men's heart is so great. God does not add sin to us. He lets us be. Romans 1, God did what? Because they worshiped the creature instead of the creator, he what? Gave them up. Frightening words. Because if God gives you up, what help is there? 
What salvation is there? There's none. The picture of darkness here is spiritual wickedness. And I promise, I, I told Nicole, I, my message was shorter this morning. I'm sorry. I promise I had less notes, if that means anything. The picture here is also of spiritual darkness. As we get to the fifth trumpet, we will see spiritual darkness. <clears throat> what is the fifth trumpet? Briefly, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I star saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Anybody know who that is? Yes. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft rose, smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. What does smoke do? It brings darkness. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft, and from then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions. Are we looking for a rash of killer locusts? No. This is a picture of spiritual wickedness. This is a picture of Satan and his power that is allowed to do so much damage and no more to the unbelieving. He said, woe, woe, woe to who? Those who dwell where? Those who dwell on the earth. Um, verse 13, briefly, then I looked and I heard an, an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. John hears an eagle. And if we cross-reference this to the rest of scripture, multiple locations in scripture refer to the hunting prowess of the eagle. Amazing strength and quickness. I am a Philadelphia Eagles fan, as you guys well know, best bird in the world. It also happens to be an unclean bird, according to scripture, Deuteronomy 14, 12. But these are the ones that you shall not eat, the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, unclean. But everywhere you read about the eagle in scripture, it, it gives you language like this, Deuteronomy 28, 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. The picture here is of swift judgment. That's the picture. The three woes are brought against the inhabitants of the world or the dwellers, the earth dwellers. Who are the earth dwellers? Anybody? Yeah, I'm saved. They're the people that love this place. What does Jesus say or John say in 1 John 2.15? Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is what? Passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we have a triple woe pronounced. Great calamity on those who dwell on the earth. Whenever we compare earth dwellers in the book of Revelation, it makes a very clear distinction. These are not the saints, because where are the saints? Seated in the heavenlies. Our citizenship is not from here, but those who love this world are clinging to it. It brings the picture of Lot's wife. You know, we, we tend to think that our culture is pretty bad. How bad was Sodom and Gomorrah that not 10 righteous people could be found? You think we're as bad as we can get? We can get a lot worse. 
God is still restraining evil. But what does she do? You would think that Lot and his wife, especially after what they went through, when they got out of the city, would be happy to leave that place. And we find the angel warns them, don't look back. And what does she do? She longs for home. The earth dwellers long for home. This is not the home of the believer. So this triple woe is brought against those who live on this earth. And it's prophetic language from the Old Testament. Mark read Isaiah chapter 3. Hosea 7.13 says this, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Next time we get together, we will look at the fifth trumpet. So what is the application here? Remember, as we wrap up this morning, there was a promise of blessing to those who read, to those who heard, to those who keep what is written for the time is near. There's an admonition here to keep ourselves from idols. I want to give you a definition as we finish this morning. In 1 John Chapter 2, verse 17, I just read this. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John continues in chapter 5, verse 20. Listen to this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. You know, our culture cannot even define the word true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then John says something very interesting. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a curious couple of verses there. We know him who is true because we have been given understanding. And who is it that is true but the Son of God? In him we have eternal life. And then he says, keep yourselves from idols. How would we define idols? And he's and he's specifically talking to little ones here, little children. Lay you kids. And there's a lot of other little kids here too. Keep yourselves from idols. How do we know what an idol is? Well, based on John's definition here, an idol is anything that makes you a promise to give you what only Jesus can give. Let me say that again. An idol is anything that makes you a promise to give you what only Jesus can give. What did Revelation 9 say? They refused to repent of what? The works of their hands. Idols of gold, silver, drugs, illicit sex, all of these things that people pursue that they think will give them what only Jesus can give them. That is idolatry. And that's that's exactly the judgment that God is pronouncing on the world. He will judge the idols of this world. And for the church who's reading this, the blessing is this, he is warning us. Do we have idols in our lives? What are you looking to for for fulfillment in your life? 
What do you think will satisfy you? Because if it isn't the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an idol. As good as it may be, on the other side of the, the married fence, been there, was single till 28. And there's a tendency, if you're single, to think, I'm not fulfilled until I'm married. Let me tell you something. Your wife or your husband is not Jesus. We can make idols of our spouses. Well, if I have a family, I'll be fulfilled. Your kids can't give you what Jesus gives you. We just get that house on the hill with the white picket fence. Can't do it. Lots of good things in this life that we think are good and in and of themselves, not bad. It's good to be married. It is. It's good to have children. They're not our gods. There's a warning against idols here. And I want to give you just these encouragements briefly. A reminder that all that happens on this earth, including tragedy, the judgment of the wicked, the persecution, the tribulation, the suffering for the saint, is all under the sovereign disposition of God. We will come back to this multiple times because we're going to continue our study through the book of Revelation, and we have to be reminded of that. All things work together for what? Good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is, thirdly, restraining judgment while we, the believer, are here on this planet and he is gathering his elect. It is not as bad as it could be. There are sometimes we think it is, but it could be a lot worse. God is restraining evil. The revelation of Jesus is just that. It's a revelation of Jesus, and it reminds us that Christ loves the church. We need to be reminded of this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What is Christ doing with his church in the middle of all this? He's sanctifying it. This one's a tough one. But husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And our wives should be sanctified and growing in grace because of us. That's on us, guys. He is guiding his bride just like a shepherd. Fifth, he has washed us white in his precious blood. Revelation 7, 14. The saints in heaven are washed in the blood. Our sins are forgiven. That should encourage us. We die today. You get into a car accident on your way home and you die. And you're a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. You can rejoice in that no matter what happens. All suffering will be made right. Think about the injustices in this life. Every tear, the scripture says, will be wiped away. He will remove them. And then this one, lastly, as we close this morning, every child of God is sealed with the Holy Spirit and is outside of the reach of the enemy. We'll look at that next time we get together. But Satan cannot touch you. Much talk in our culture today about deliverance. And can, and can Christians be demon-possessed? We'll talk about that one next time, so come back. God indwells his people. And let me tell you something. When God indwells his people, you know who can't indwell his people? Satan. We're out of the reach of the enemy. Yes, he can afflict. Yes, he can 
He can uh, create division among the brethren, and he does it. But he is under the sovereign control of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I know that this was lengthy, and I thank you for the patience of this church family in bearing along this morning. Pray that you would cause us to be mindful of the fact that your judgment is not to be trifled with. You are coming back, and you have brought judgment um, into this world in a very real sense as we look around and see the events of this life. You are reminding us that the great day of wrath is coming, and now is the time to repent. We ask that if there are any here this morning, Father, that you would give them life, that you would remove their blindness, that you will continue to save your remnant, and that you will strengthen your church, that your people would be fed and edified and encouraged in spite of this speaker this morning. Thank you for our time together. In your name we pray. Amen.